Hello, this is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season in high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA Teen Birding Camps, in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program, and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its nesting season appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our young birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the nesting season appeal, please donate online at aba.org give or call us at 800 850 2473 and give what you can. Programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding. Again, that website is aba.org give and the phone number is 800-850-2473. Thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders and good birding to all of you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Perhaps you remember about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, when it came to light that the United States Fish and Wildlife Service was going to change the requirements for federal duck stamp paintings to include a hunting element with the explanation that we needed to celebrate our waterfowl hunting heritage. The duck stamp, for those who might not know, is the stamp issued by the federal government to allow for waterfowl hunting, and it also helps you get entry to several U.S. national wildlife refuges that typically charge entry fees. But what it really is, is this huge annual fundraiser for wetlands conservation, which famously 98% of the proceeds of each sale of a stamp going to the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund. It's a hugely important method for raising conservation funds. Almost all of it goes directly into purchasing bird wildlife habitat. That move to add the hunting element was supposed to be permanent, but as with everything else, it is simply a decision by an agent of the executive branch. It wasn't. I think I even said something along those lines back then that if it isn't a legislative action, then it's one of those things that can be stricken as easily as it's made. Which is just as well as it was incredibly unpopular, at least among those people who pay attention to these sorts of things. Birders hated it. Waterfowl artists annoyed by it. Waterfowl hunters questioned its necessity. Stamp collectors were perplexed by it. Name literally any stakeholder in the duck stamp slash bird conservation scene. And they either actively opposed it or questioned the point of it. I think I described it back then as a move made to appeal to a community that isn't even paying attention. So perhaps unsurprisingly, that move seems to be as short-lived as a 17-year cicada. Well, the adult. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced last month that they are seeking to reverse that woeful decision. It does require a comment period, but honestly, if you just look at the comments for the original 
proposal because they were almost to an individual one against the change, but they did it anyway. So if you need evidence that these decisions are occasionally a fait accompli, especially among bad actors, well, there you have it. But it is required, technically speaking, and we will, fingers crossed, be more or less a triviality to get back to where we were. For what it's worth, I'm not a hunter. I don't love the hunting paraphernalia in a duck stamp, but I mean, it doesn't bother me if it's an occasional thing or if the artist wants to include it in some more natural or artistic way. Whatever, fine. It was the requirement that bugged me and the weird shoehorning in of the element in a way that frequently looked like litter. So I think I'm happy to put it behind us. But let's focus on what's in front of us, a brand new episode featuring my colleague Ted Floyd. You loved our eBird annotated bit last time, and we're doing it again with a twist, sort of. All that after this week's Redbirds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of July 2021. Rosegate Spoonbills continue to blow up into the middle of the continent with a record from just south of Ann Arbor, Michigan, representing that state's first record this past week. I don't know what else there is to say about this species this year. Go look at the eBird map for 2021 and you'll see that there are multiple records in Pennsylvania and New York, some very close to states and provinces that do not have roseate spoonbill records yet or only have one or two It's not even August yet, so it would not surprise me to see birds in Massachusetts or Nova Scotia or South Dakota by the end of this thing. Why not? Go nuts. You get a spoonbill. You get a spoonbill. Everybody gets a spoonbill. British Columbia also gets a new waiter for their list as a tricolored heron in Kowichan Bay on the southern end of Vancouver Island represents a provincial first and one that is especially bitter for Washington birders as that state remains the last in the continental United States without a tricolored heron record. Even Alaska has one. You know, it did probably fly over Washington to get to BC. So, you know, your list. That is all I have for this week. For all your rarity needs, please check out the Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba or for up-to-the-minute rarity news, join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group or follow at ABA Bird Alert on Twitter. Ted Floyd and I had such a good response to our initial eBird annotated talk that it was only a matter of time before we did it again. So I am pleased to welcome back my ABA colleague, Birding Magazine editor, Ted Floyd, for another round of chatting about eBird checklists. Uh, Welcome back, Ted. Thank you, Nate. Good to be back. So we've got a slightly different angle this time, which which works. Um, Both Ted and I were on the road recently, two places that meant something to us in the past, although slightly different things. Uh, In both cases, birding wasn't the main reason why we traveled there, but per usual, it is something that you take advantage of while you're anywhere. Uh, You can take the birder out of the patch, but you can't take the patch out of the bird or something along those lines. Anyway, <laughs> might be the other way around, but I know what you're yeah, trying to say. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. It's it's a metaphor that I hadn't really thought about very closely. But anyway, <laughs> welcome, Ted. Um, as usual, our our eBird checklists are in the show notes for your perusal. Should you desire, tell us uh, a little bit about where in the world you were and where you went birding. Right. So uh, last week. Given today's recording date, so we're talking mm-hmm. uh, the uh, two weeks ago. The, yeah, two weeks ago, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'll, let's just do some dates here. July eighth, 
9th mm-hmm. and 10th, 2021, I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s. And in particular, I spent a lot of time in Frick Park, which is one of those sort of big uh, 19th century Central Park derivative parks with a uh, grand architecture and very improbable places in the middle of the park <laughs> and uh, really old trees now and uh, lots of uh, for me these days, sort of uh, exciting and uh, and uh, uh, much sought after Eastern birds, you know things like right. tufted titmouse and Carolina oh, chickadee birds that I just don't really get my rare. fill of in uh, in Colorado. <laughs> so yeah, I was in a place called Frick Park. It's a uh, quite large, uh, maybe about five hundred acre uh, urban park in um, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and so I for the same dates actually from about the the fifth to the tenth um, was down in Florida, South Florida, uh, in Lee County on Sanibel Island, which is on the Gulf Coast of Florida, down south of Naples, uh, south of Fort Myers, um, and perhaps birders might know Sanibel Island uh, most because it is the site of the very famous Ding Darling. National Wildlife Refuge, one of those kind of classic birding refuges that everyone needs to put on their birding bucket list. Um, unfortunately, most people go there for the best birding in the winter. I was there in midsummer, which is uh, you know a fun place to go for uh, beach beach combing, uh, just general beach merriment. Um, not the best time of year to go if you want to get a big list, um, but. You can't go to Sanibel without going on the wildlife loop a couple times to see what's out there. Uh, and that's what we did. So it was mostly a family trip, but we turned it into a little bit of a, a few birding outings here and there. Yeah, like uh, like many tourists to Florida, I can tell you mm-hmm. that I'm pretty sure I've been there only in the uh, you know winter, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. months, the sort of colder season months. Um I have to say, though, I was uh, talking recently with two uh, Florida residents known to both of us, um, Eliana Ardila and Mark Kramer, and Mm -hmm. uh, they made this really uh, impressive pitch for visiting in the summer months. And and now they're a little farther south, of course, than um, you must have been like in the Naples, Fort Myers area, right? Yes. Right, right. right, Yeah, they're they're down in Miami. But um, it's funny. Birds like a gray kingbird and black whiskered Mm -hmm. vireo, which, you know, I've seen many of south of the united states or actually in florida in the summer it'd be so cool for me you know just to be able to to see that florida summer avifauna so yes my trips to florida have been sort of in that october to march um range but i I, actually kind of looking forward to hearing what you have to say about uh, florida in the summer well uh, you know sanibel island was a place that we always used to go when i was a a child in Mm. the in the 90s Um, my parents just really liked it and so we drove down there uh, for like several consecutive years, um, always in the summer because my folks were teachers. And so that's mm. when we had the time off. Sure. And uh, so I've never been there in the winter. I don't I don't know what it's like my entire experience <laughs> at this, you know, birding, this birding Mecca, this birding hotspot is in the summer, in the buggy, hot, humid, mosquito infested <laughs> summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I wish it, it is the time we can see black whiskered vireo and gray kingbird, um, and and of course things like magnificent frigate birds are sure, all yeah. over the place, and swallowtail mm-hmm. kites. Of oh, course, wow. like I was shocked how many swallowtail kites we saw. That was like an everyday flyover ton of bird, um, which feels unfair for a bird so spectacular. <laughs> but uh, they're they're they were there like all the time, flying over everywhere. Yeah, in fact, actually, I'm looking at your checklist now mm-hmm. for which day is this? July eighth. And swallow-tailed kite is your most numerous bird. Oh, right. <laughs> they, they're the in these, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's really cool. But yeah, just, yeah, it, 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 you had four of them 
and then uh, threes of like fish crow and little blue hair and, and, and others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool when swallowtail kite is your most common bird. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Wow. I don't know. Last time we did this, we did a thing where we tried to find which birds were in common. And I don't know if we're going to find a ton of those uh, on many of our checklists this time. Yeah, so Nate, um, uh, our, our, our minds in the, are in the exact same place here. And you, you mm-hmm. may have, an, it seems like you may have anticipated this, but um, I noticed that we have five species in common. Just five. Okay. Just five. And I think for all, all of our days down there, at least um, the checklist that I'm seeing, for you, so I, I know I'm like totally putting you on the spot here. Although, yeah. well, could almost like you know, I wish we could have like a audience participation. Like, guess which words? Yeah. What what are, what are the five? And and just to be real clear, I, I can tell obviously you were in sort of a at least coastal or near coastal situations, mm-hmm. and um, I was entirely inland. Yeah. I didn't see a mallard, for example, the entire time. Yeah. I well, back. I didn't either. So oh, 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 <laughs> there's there <laughs> model ducks. <laughs> That's it. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Of course, in the summer, the yeah. see there, I'm going with that, uh, that non-summer uh, bias yeah. there. Right. So I, I guess the question is, what are the five? Um, well, um, yeah, I was, I was just glancing through. Um, so a lot of them are kind of common Eastern forest mm-hmm. species. Uh, yep. Carolina chickadee. Yep. Uh, Northern cardinal. That's right. Yeah. Carolina wren. Uh, red-bellied woodpecker and pileated woodpecker. Yeah, are those the five? Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, <laughs> pileated woodpecker was a good one because um, I, I was sort of surprised uh, there on on Sanibel because it's not a place with a bunch of like big trees. It's mostly kind of shrubby. Like the tallest trees are not trees at all. They're actually like power poles. Um, and the and the pileated woodpeckers were were on there. That's where I saw them as well. Yeah, I guess. And for pileated woodpecker in Frick Park, I guess I was sort of surprised and not surprised. And what I mean by that is it's always wonderful to see a, a pileated mm-hmm. woodpecker. Sure. And I yeah, know that they have a, they've really urbanized in Pittsburgh and, and elsewhere in the east and, and really range wide in the past 25 years. But when I was a kid burning that park in the 1980s, it would have been, you know, heart-stoppingly, inconceivably rare to find a, a pileated <laughs> woodpecker in that in that city park. And uh, and, and they breed now. In fact, a, a friend That's showed wild. me the, the nest where, where I guess they had fledged uh, just a little while before yeah. I was, was in the park. And I uh, got to see a s- stunning male uh, still still drumming. So as I said, um, surprising and unsurprising. I, I, I know they're there, but it's still mm-hmm. always startling to encounter a pileated woodpecker. Were there any other species that you encountered? You know, obviously, this is a place that you birded frequently 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, 30 Um, 30 plus years ago. Yeah. Were there any other birds that sort of surprised you that are present now that were not present when you were – when you were there as a child, as a yeah, young well, person? So to me, that is that is the overwhelming dominant story right. of yeah, going yeah. back to that park. So just to be clear, um, I, I do get back there from time to time. My parents um, and my sister still live mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. So you know, I have a reason other than birds to, to go back right. to, to Frick Park. And yeah, it's, just to be clear, we're really talking about sort of the uh, the early 1980s, you know, early to mid-1980s, so you know, 35 uh, years ago now. Mm-hmm. But uh, just one, one good example would be that the red-bellied woodpecker, which yeah. went from essentially absent in that park, in that part of Pittsburgh, to by far the most commonly detected and probably the most numerous woodpecker in the park. Yeah. And not just in the park, on you know, city streets, you see them in traffic and, you know, the business district and, and stuff like that. So that, that's that's one such example. And a more subtle one, but certainly one that birders notice is the, um, this, you know, 
constant, slow but steady northward drift of the black-capped Carolina chickadee transition <laughs> zone. Right. So yeah. it's all Carolina chickadees in the park now. I didn't see or hear anything that even remotely seemed like a black-capped hmm. to me. And when I started birding, the conventional wisdom, which may have been somewhat wrong, was that it was only black-caps. You know, I think the Carolinas were actually already there, uh, but it's uh, really been a, a takeover by the Carolina chickadees. Um, and then again, the, the pileated woodpecker, like, you know, a bird yeah. that is, you know, it's not abundant in the park, but you can certainly sort of see them and hear them whenever you're out there. What is the current state of that hybrid zone? Like, where is it in relation to, to Pittsburgh? How far north has it drifted? It, it, I have two answers to your question. I have three. The first is I'm not really sure. The second is it's actually being sort of quantitatively looked at. And what's really cool is that it's moving north across the entire hybrid zone at about the same rate. And I don't know how many, you know, tenths of a kilometer per year that is or anything like that. But um it's not too far north of Pittsburgh. I think that in the northern mm-hmm. part of Allegheny County, which is the county Pittsburgh is in, there are still breeding black-capped chickadees. Um, it's also, from what I gather, a pretty um, tight uh, border across the entire um, zone of overlap. So it's not one of these, you know, very broad uh, overlaps like between red-shafted and yellow-shafted flicker in Colorado right. or something like that. So I get the sense that in general, you know, if you go thirty miles north or south, you go from like black cap to Carolina and never the twain shall meet. I, I don't know about, huh. you know, intergrades, you know, whose genes we have right, to you right, know, right. test in the lab or anything like that. But it, it seems like the um, the zone of overlap is pretty narrow between black cap and Carolina chickadees. Yeah, interestingly enough, we have a zone of overlap here in North Carolina because we have this little tiny remnant population of mm. black cap chickadees in the uh, high elevations of the Smoky right. Mountains. Right. And uh, they come down in the winter sometimes and they overlap a little bit, but for the most part, they're they're pretty separate. Which is kind of wild because they're – it's actually this little tiny population that um, from an ornithological history perspective is, is really interesting because it was first looked at by um, – oh, what's the guy's name who did the, all the all the groundbreaking ivory-billed woodpecker work in Louisiana? Singer? Not oh, Singer. The, that's the uh, track. Uh, so the Singer tra- – oh, uh, oh, Jim. James. Allen? Uh, could be no. Williams. I, I, I think, no, I don't think that's right either. Yeah, I, 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 exa- I could look at it and, and perhaps people are like screaming at their <laughs> podcast. <laughs> like no, the no, that's right. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, um, but anyway, he was the guy that did actually the the work, the original work on the Black Cap Chickadee, Carolina Chickadee interface. Are you looking it up on Google? I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you typing? It's um, James Tanner. There Tanner, we go. that's the Thanks. guy. Yep, okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, he did the work on the the Carolina Chickadee, Black Cap Chickadee intergrade in, in North Carolina as, work, oh, as well back in the back in the 20s before he became, you know, sort of famous or infamous for his ivory build woodpecker stuff in um, really. in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, I, but yeah. I, I, I would say famous, not not infamous in Tanner's not case. Sure. From, from, from everything I gather about Tanner, um, his woodpecker work was um, the impeccable yeah. science. Well, you know, I, 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 I perhaps for that photo of him with the baby ivory build woodpecker oh, on yeah, his shoulder. Yeah. I, that's <laughs> why I would have called that an iconic photo. Iconic. There you go. In, infamous. <laughs> yes. that, 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 that's, that's okay yeah. um, as well. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. T- Tanner and the singer tract. There we go. Yeah, Good. that's right. Anyway, he did it, it. Just talking about chickadees, that's sort of, you know, in, I always find that story uh, in North Carolina interesting because people always have to make that that trek up into the if you if you're a state lister you yeah. got to go up and above five thousand feet in the Smoky Mountain National yeah. Park and and listen for the black capped chickadees and their their song and hopefully you or their 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 call because the song they they actually mimic each other's song oh, which is another thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah even there are some Carolina chickadees in places where black caps have been extirpated that are still singing 
black cap chickadee songs. Interesting. Yeah, it's wild stuff. Cool. Hey Nate. Um, anyway, you, back you, to Florida. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> sort of. Like, and, yeah, and back to a question that you you asked me. I might sort of like invert the question here. You yeah, asked yeah. about uh, how some birds have changed, and you know, to me, that's sort of the, the story of getting back to Frick Park right. for, for me and getting back to Pittsburgh. I, I, and maybe a question I'll ask you about Florida. We can talk about in Pittsburgh too. Is sort of how. Uh, how everything else has changed since, you know, we're both yeah. comparing, you know, adulthood with your childhood experiences. I mean, just yeah. real, two huge themes in Frick Park would be um, really big changes in infrastructure. The park just has mm-hmm. trails and buildings and um, recreated wetlands and so forth that it didn't have uh, when I was a kid. And, you know, this is sort of a story and a theme that we've been really um, dwelling on for the past year and a half plus now, but so many people, the, yeah. the volume of human beings in the park. Yes. Was that, and and I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. I saw more birders in three days than absolutely I would have seen in three years in the 1980s. And But the even more amazing statistic to me, because the, what I'm about to say didn't even exist in the 1980s, I saw so many more mountain bikers. Remember, mountain bikes oh, are really? kind of a, they kind of came online, if you will, I you know, in the late mid mid nineteen eighties, and yeah. I'm certain that I saw 250 people on mountain bikes. And do they have trails kind of off off the main paths that kind of cut through the? They the do, then? but yeah. the bikers don't use them. I would say that the mountain mm-hmm. bikers, at least in Frick Park, are um, really good about staying on <laughs> trails and, and watching yeah. out for uh, for uh, for you know the the multi use phenomenon yeah. out there. So. It was gratifying to see that, really. But anyhow, just just so many human beings in the park and on weekday mornings. I, mean, I, I know it's the yeah. summer, but it's not like you know this was you know a big holiday Saturday or Sunday. That these were just you know random Thursdays and Fridays in the middle of July. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sort of happy to say that the similar similar thing is true for uh, Sanibel Island. Um, I remember when I used to go in the mid '90s as a teenager. Um, that really the only places that you would go birding are the the actual wildlife loop at Ding Darling and the Bailey tract, sort of this right. famous kind of, you know, the Baileys were this old family that settled on um, Sanibel Island and, and their name is on everything down there. But the Bailey tract was this, um, you know, nice walk there. That was a place where you'd find stuff like, uh, I don't know, black whiskered vary and whatnot. Mm. But now, you know, there's a conservation federation down there that has done a ton of work, like protecting all this kind of habitat all over the place. So there are protected areas, uh, with the Cinnabon Captiva Conservation Fund or Foundation uh, name on them all over the island and, and way more than I remember uh, when we used to go back in the in the mid-90s. And um, yeah, so I mean, there's just so much protected there. And I know that's sort of a point of pride of uh, hmm. residents of the island that a certain percentage, certain, a very high percentage, it's, it's north of 50% of the island is, is protected. Um, but they're continuing to do that. And there are all these new tracks that are opening up and, um, you know, they've done a really nice job kind of eradicating a lot of the Australian pines, this invasive pine species. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's just a lot of, a lot of sea grapes and a lot of mangroves and a lot of actually really good looking habitats. Now that, that makes it very difficult sometimes to find birds cause, <laughs> cause like the roadways are like bordered, um, by a bike path and then like pretty sure. dense brush. So like, uh, I was, I was looking out for a short-tailed hawk that's one of the south florida species that um yeah I've, I've seen it in in middle america i've seen it in um you know but i've never seen it in florida and i hope that this would be the chance mm-hmm. and well i did have one that looked pretty good but we didn't get a good enough look to be absolutely certain um yeah you know birds just kind of blow past you and then like are in this brush very quickly and it can be kind of hard to do any sort of roadside birding uh, for better or for worse probably for better for the birds for for worse for the birders but you know that's just the way it is i'll, I'll take that for, for 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 sure and and just to sort of 
really repeat something that you said and that also that I said. It, 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 I think it's ultimately very encouraging that mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. are more people out there paying attention and you know, basically caring about what's going on yeah. uh, as yeah. well. So Absolutely. Hey, um, <laughs> an interviewee taking over from the interview. No, please. That's why we do this. <laughs> no, no, no. Just a, uh, another point of change. I'm sure it's one that's, you know, lurking uh, in both of our minds here too, would just be the, uh, the changes in uh, how we engage birds and nature, mm-hmm. especially uh, technically speaking. Um, I, I have to share with you a, a really, I think, a telling sign of the times for me. The very first sign that you see when you enter the trails at Frick Park is sort of a, a a welcome birders sign. So for starters, that's that's very different from anything you would have seen in the 1980s. Yeah. And then I think the first sentence says something along the lines of, you know, uh, please help us understand the, the birds at Frick Park better. And the second sign says, first things first, sign up for an eBird account. Oh, and, nice. And, which, is, yeah. which, 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 which is cool, you know, that, you know, it's not a buy a field guide or, or, or get your binoculars out of the car or <laughs> take your major in biology or take an ornithology <laughs> course. Well, those are all very valuable things, but it, it says first things first, get an eBird account. And the, uh, the birders I met in the park were, of course, all eBirding uh, as they went. And I should also yeah. just say that um, I was very much uh, eye-natting as much as I was eBirding. Yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, were there any non-bird organisms that you encountered that were that were surprising? Because, I, you know, it's hard not to do that on on a beach i mean there's a lot mm-hmm. of cool stuff i saw a manatee uh, i was pretty stoked about that always and uh, my dad ran across and my brother-in-law actually as well uh, ran across a bobcat on the wow. grounds of the place we were staying um you know there are little crabs all over the place and sea turtle nests everywhere so you know there's a lot of cool non-bird organisms around uh to pay attention to as well yeah, so you mentioned, uh, I think, if, if I heard you right, your, your dad and your, your brother-in-law, and I should mm-hmm. note that um, I also had a, a, a companion with me. My, my daughter was with me the whole time, and uh, she, although she'd been in Frick Park, uh, this was really the first time that she was a, a full-fledged, full-on eye natter yeah, in yeah. Frick Park. So she'd actually really done her research and uh, wanted to find um, some sort of special non-avian organisms. We spent a lot of time with uh, slime molds, which oh, cool. are these really cool uh, sort of social amoebae. I always think of slime molds in like nature documentaries where they're like paying attention to the, the small things in your yard and they speed up the slime mold yeah. video so that you can see them kind of crawling along. Yeah. The- Some of them, by the way, aren't, aren't all that small. You know, I mean, yeah. they're, they're smaller than, you know, large birds, but you know, they're, they're, they're very macroscopic and quite mm-hmm. easy to see. And no, I was just thinking how in the 1980s, I actually had a pretty good conceptual and theoretical knowledge of slime molds. I was just mm-hmm. into that kind of thing, but I never would have entertained the possibility of being able to see them in, in yeah, real right. life, let alone yeah. identify them. And um, that um, Seek app by INAD is just amazing. You hold it up to a slime mold and it tells you that it's looking at, um, you're looking at a wolf's milk or dog vomit or red raspberry or honeycomb coral. They have these marvelous yeah, names. And um, yeah, we sort of did a, a slime mold big day which was uh, which was so cool. Um, Probably set a record too. We, we, I'm actually I'm sure we did. We um, we had we had very very heavy rain while we were there, and that resulted in um, a great activity from a Limax maximus, which is the uh, the leopard slug or the great gray slug, and that's just mm-hmm. you know this monster sized slug all over the place. And then I'll just spend a lot of time with fungus. Uh, one is called the. Uh, Eastern North American destroying angel. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, I love those. And, yeah, and, 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 and I, yeah. Where I'm going with this, and you may have picked up on this already, is that um, these are magnificent names, and not a <laughs> one of them is patronymic. And yeah. um, it's just you, you and, and by the and, and they're very descriptive. Um, 
I have to say dog vomit looks like dog vomit and red raspberry really is the color of, of red raspberry. And, um, I sure wouldn't want to eat something called Eastern North American destroying angel. <laughs> and apparently it's, People it's, it's, do, it's, though. <laughs> but, but it's highly toxic, right? Oh yeah. 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 Right, right, right. yeah. So um, yeah, it was really, really cool to sort of a, literally and you know, physically, you know, get down on our uh, hands and knees and uh, check out a lot of um, macroscopic, but uh, decidedly non avian organisms while we were out there. So spent a lot of time with a uh, multicellular amoebae and with, I should say, um, uh, well, okay, aggregations of, of amoebae that technically mm-hmm. multicellular, and then with um, uh, uh, fungi, fungi as well. So that was really fun. You mentioned a lot of rain. Was that uh, Tropical Storm Elsa? You know, because we were in the middle of that when right. we were there. <laughs> um, some of the deluges felt like you know those sort of rain bands associated with with, with tropical storms. I'm, I'm actually mm-hmm. not sure of that, but uh, there was. Serious flooding um, and a lot of uh, down trees. Yeah, we, we actually lost. Uh, they actually closed the wildlife refuge drive for a couple of days, unfortunately, mm-hmm. while we were there due to Tropical Storm Elsa, which was um, a little bit frustrating. But there's still, as I said, a lot of places to bird yep. um, on Sanibel Island and Lee County just generally. And, and you know, I, birding in Florida is this kind of wonderful. You don't really have to work very hard for it. Mm-hmm, you know, right. you, you, anywhere you go, there's like, uh, as I said, swallowtail kites, uh, white ibis, any number of various wading bird species flying over. Um, obviously, a lot of passerins as well. Uh, a lot of grackles, bowtail grackles, which are always sort of fun to, to watch if you get a chance to just because they're so, um, I, I don't know, just, just really charismatic birds. Even though I went birding only a few times, like I was birding almost constantly, which is really easy to do in Florida. I think for you and me, it's probably easy to do almost uh, almost anywhere. That's I, true. I, yeah. I, I know I know what you're talking about, but I'll just uh, sort of take this a little sideways and say that um, really, what struck me more than anything else was the uh, the ease of finding, as I said, those uh, those non avian entities mm. out there. I'm really starting to appreciate just how um, slime mold and fungus starved we are out here in dry Colorado, <laughs> and uh, the, 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 there may be more birds in Colorado. In fact, I know there are more birds in Colorado, but the uh, the uh, proliferation of a non-avian biota in Frick Park was really gratifying. Oh yeah, the fungi fungi finders are a big deal. And the, I would say something these. I really um, overlooked or took for granted in the 1980s, in part because I just didn't have the technology for for being able to identify them. Yes. Um, in part, I think just we have better knowledge than we used to, and that's really cool. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the INAT seek function, and I was playing around with that while I was down there as well. Um, you know the, the various grasses and, and trees that you can find in those in places that I didn't know. Um, I also played around with the new Merlin vocal so identification did I, for the play first around. time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I don't know about you, but I was really impressed by it. I me too. I I didn't, I didn't run it through its paces on any sort of really difficult birds, but yeah. like it was nailing the common stuff. Right. So I did one test, um, but multiple recordings of this bird, uh, Acadian flycatcher, which mm-hmm. you know, gives that very short, simple pizza uh, song. Uh, it is spectrographically distinctive, and Merlin got all of them right. There were a couple of cases, though, where uh, my voice was in the recording. So you know, at the end, you know, Acadian flycatcher, Frick Park, July tenth, and. What do you suppose it thought that my voice was? I, I, I know oh. I'm totally putting you on the spot here. And, and let's just do it this way. Oh, Acadian flycatcher, July 10th. And it, it Did it think it was a bird? 
Yes, I thought it was a bird. Did it think it was like an American bittern or something? You're in the right neighborhood. It kept calling it great black-backed gull. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, and it just you know didn't know what to make of me because you know there wasn't supposed to be a, 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 a human. And you know when I talk into the the recorder, I have this kind of strange low muffled sound. But you know I, I can almost <laughs> picture like a great a great black gull. Like, oh, 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 oh. I mean they do sort of make that noise when they're foraging on a beach or something like that. So that was obviously a, a very unfair test of um, of Merlin. But I was impressed how it, it got all of those Acadians. And um, when my voice wasn't in it, Acadian flycatcher was the only response it gave. So it it got it right. And it didn't even offer the opportunity for a a secondary incorrect guess. So yeah, I'm I'm really impressed by it. Yeah. And I I like the option of uh, adding those um, sound files directly to an eBird checklist as well. I mean, it's, it's just really cool stuff. I mean, you know, we've been wanting that Shazam, Mm-hmm. for birders sort of mythical shazam for birders app for for so long and um boy i like i never would have thought it would have been here i thought it would have been too difficult and and maybe for some birds it is as long as you kind of have an awareness of the limitations of this sort of technology yeah and the variations of, of bird vocalizations but man if it gets like 80 85 of them that's pretty impressive and what i love about um, not only this new function with Merlin, but also you know the uh, the machine learning with especially iNaturalist is it, mm-hmm. it can't get worse and really it can yeah, only get right. better. Um, yeah. The more data it gets, you know, the better the the machine learning is. And I actually know about this a little bit better from the iNat end of things. But it, if you're impressed with iNat in 2021 or impressed with Merlin in 2021, it's going to be better in 22 and better yeah, still totally. in 2023. And yeah. it just needs more, more uploads. And of course, and this is very important. It also needs more, um, you know, critically examined, um, uh, checklists yeah. as well. So it's important for us in, in, in Merlin, eBird, of course, uh, and also in INAT to correct the mistakes because the machine is actually paying attention uh, yeah. to that. But yeah, I've noticed, and this is sort of subjective and anecdotal, but, um, in the couple of years since I've been using INAT, the machine has really learned <laughs> yeah, and right. in general, there are fewer crazy mistakes out there. And a lot of them have to do with just um, funny bugs, like how you name a file or something mm-hmm. uh, like that. And there must be some way to deactivate. Actually, I know there's a way to deactivate that, but that, that can trip up a more sort of na- naive user. But yeah, anyway, my, my impression is that given that this Merlin sound ID app is, I mean, it's only like a couple months old, right? Yeah, not even. Not I mean, even. It's yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. It's, it's, yeah. it's working really well. So, um, Acadian flycatcher is my test bird. Which one's worked for you? Uh, Northern Cardinal. I, oh, yeah. I kind of tested on a Northern Cardinal and I tried it on a, um, uh, like a, like a, I got close to a white ibis. And it was mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, did it, and it got a white ibis, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's cool. Because, I mean, you know, to me, a cardinal is that I'm just picturing it in my mind's eye now that very right, the, the distinct spectrogram yeah. with those you know, usually very sharply down slurred, sort of repetitious notes. I think of an I, a white ibis as just sort of growling or grunting mm. and sounding like a lot of things, including perhaps a, a great black backed gull. But yeah, that, <laughs> that, that's really cool. That's great. Yeah, nothing but uh, plaudits for, uh, for the eBird folks that are that are doing it, particularly uh, Drew Weber, who's been on the, oh, yeah. on the podcast. I mean, I guess I should have him back to talk about it. I, I noticed that you were, it was not just Hannah that you were with. You had some uh, interesting cameos with some known <laughs> ABA podcast entities. I saw Frank, Frank is a Gary. Oh, right, a yeah. Pittsburgh native. Well, not, not necessarily. Is he Pittsburgh native? I don't, I don't he, know. He's actually another Pittsburgh South resident. South, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, a, he's, another a, he's a South Floridian. Yeah, yeah, there's a connection. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, but he's a, a Pittsburgher uh, for sure these days. And uh, Adrian uh, is a Gary who's there. And then their uh, brand new daughter, Maya, uh, was out yeah. there. And then uh, Jack Solomon, a uh, well-known to anybody in Western Pennsylvania, sort of my uh, I don't know if I had a mentor in my teen years, but he's certainly the closest I had to a mentor uh, was out there. It was wonderful to see uh, to see Jack there. I think every I got to see a little bit of Jack every single 
day and uh, did a lot of birding and um, and eye natting with Jack as well. Yeah. Per usual, uh, all of our eBird checklists are on uh, the show notes. You can check those out if you like. Uh, we'll have uh, images and uh, sound files and all the all the good stuff that eBird provides. Ted, thank you so much for for taking some time to chat with me about uh, about your recent travels. Hopefully, we'll get some more opportunities to do that soon. Yep. Thanks for having me, and we'll get you out to Colorado pretty soon. Too, yeah, I'd love to. So, I've yeah. got the got the bug. That's for sure. For sure. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. Members get more stuff like our great magazines, discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books and the Cornell Lab, and opportunities to travel with us. Get information about all our membership options at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some special shout outs this week to Andrew Tyrell of Fort St. John, British Columbia, Emily Stores of Bronx, New York, Paula Perdoni of Williamsburg, Virginia, Laura DeGollier of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and Jeffrey Crump and Jared Crump of Cary, North Carolina. Jared notes that he loves listening to the podcast when he and his dad go on their birding adventures in the morning. Jared is 11 years old. Jared, if you ever find yourself out near Greensboro, drop me a line. But all of these folks recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who has painted a beautiful piece of art to submit to next year's Duck Stamp Contest, showing the lineup of the Long Island Ducks minor league team, which he says will celebrate our waterfowl bunting heritage. Technical production this week is by Greg Addington, again filling in for John Lowry. Thank you so much, Greg. Although your submission to the duck stamp contest of a Mexican duck doing an impossible ollie with a late kickflip to celebrate our waterfowl stunting heritage is as weird as it is technically impeccable. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are starting one of those nature TikToks where they harass wildlife. They say they're celebrating their otter-confronting heritage, but I didn't know that was a thing. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. Sometimes I run these terrible jokes by my kids before I record them. They get the response that you would expect. I call it celebrating my daughter scowl hunting heritage. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, folks. See you next week.